Welcome to episode 738 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Radio Tim, welcome along to episode 738 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Owls. How you going, mate? I'm pretty good, Bevan. Yourself? Are the fingers warmer? The fingers are warming up. They've taken a week, but they've warmed up. I had a partner, I think it was Raylene, it was the partner who did this, the problem. She wouldn't get enough blood to her fingers. Mm-hmm. And like on a slightly cold day, they'd literally go blue. If you're wondering what we're talking about, last on last week's show, my hands were a bit cold. It was a chilly ride up to Bevan's place. And we're actually pre-recording this show, so that was only about an hour and a half ago. There you go, so the fans have warmed up. Okay, guys, I Am Talk is proudly brought to you by... Our patrons. And Craig Brighthouse, the Stormtrooper is one of them. Because he had his cool Stormtrooper outfit that he used to race in a tri-suit. Uh, Matt Lionbrown Charlton. <laughs> Red-blooded. Um, and then we've got uh, George Gray, Mr. Mad Man. Okay, guys, in this week's show we've got news, we've got uh, John History's Lesson. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the Olympics. We're, we're slowly inching towards the Tokyo Olympics. It was supposed to be on July, and this time we're talking the 2012 Olympics in London. Okay, we've got an age group interview with who, John? Chloe Healy. And uh, this is an interesting little interview. Uh, we got it recommended to have a chat by good old Duncan Penfold, long-time listener of the show. And you never know where age group interviews are going to go, and there's some interesting things coming out of this one. Um, high five. High five, John. We haven't had a high five in a while. Yep. It's when you know John's getting desperate for content. Wang you all the week and questions and answers. Okay, well, obviously, we're, we're doubling up, so we don't know the racing that happened on the weekend, so we, we'll get we, that next week. We did have Ironman Kenzo and Cozumel 70.3, so it was going to be the first Ironman, not first, I think the third Ironman of the year, first pro Iron Distance race since COVID reared its dirty little head. So because we are in that period of time where there aren't much races happening, we thought we'd have a look at Ironman Chattanooga in 2019. Um, yeah, what so one, one year ago. and uh, Funny, we were talking about Sam Long last week. We were. So Sam Long won the Bear Lake Brawl last weekend, and he dominated this race off the back of a... a Awesome bike ride. Uh, so he swam 47-42, which was pretty much pretty similar to most of the, the sort of leading pro men that came out. Then he rode a 4.23. Put that in perspective, Matt Russell, who was second, was 10 minutes slower than that. And he was still three minutes quicker than everybody else as well. Uh, and then he ran a 3.06.53 to come home in 8.22.21. 20 minutes quicker than expected on Torsten's ratings. Matt Russell was second and Nick... Nicholas Chase was in third place. Uh, and on the female side of things, we had uh, some good close racing. Angela Nath took it out, um, courtesy of a really good bike leg. She rode 5 hours and 51 seconds, which was 12 minutes quicker than Lisa Roberts. Lisa Roberts clawed back 10 minutes on the run uh, to get within within inside four minutes of Angela Neath, but Angela Neath took it out in 9.18.45 in front of Lisa Roberts and Lenny Ramsey in third place. So that was this time, this weekend last year. <coughs> um, okay. We yep. also had Challenge Madrid on the same day, uh, or same weekend. I'm coughing like crazy. Victor Del Corral <laughs> took it out in front of uh, Joan Nadal Clare and Domenzio Passarello from Italy. And on the female side, Lisa Roberts, again, must seems crazy. Maybe I stuffed up my dates, but... She was, couldn't have been in two places in one weekend on two sides of the, the planet. Anyway, she took it out uh, with a dojo domination, 9 hours 54, um, winning by, oh, not quite a dojo domination, 19 minutes. Oh, close. In front of Miriam Van Halen and Venera Walter in third place. Um, I did want to just highlight Victor Del Corral because there's a name that comes up A often. long time on the show, eh? Yeah, and when you look through his Palmares, which is what the Frenchies use for sort of their results, and you often hear in the Tour de France, you'll hear people talk about their Palmares, and his go all the way back to 2010. Uh, and I noticed that he's turning 40, he's turned 40 this year, 
uh, and he's still doing extremely well. Um, and he's won at all different sort of races. He's done exterior races. He's done random races like Embra Man and ones that aren't necessarily um, your sort of just your Ironmans. He's done plenty of challenge races. He won the Alpe d'Huez race uh, in uh, let's see what year that was. I think that was 2011. So he's been around the block. So when you see the name Victor Del Corral, uh, he's the real deal. He's won Ironman Arizona and Florida in 2013, and uh, also won Ironman France in 2016. So good on him. Victor Del Corral took out uh, Challenge Madrid last year, amongst many other races through his career. So he's the real deal. He is the real deal. John, the Kona Iron Talk, Kona World Weekend, Weekend World Championships is on the 11th of October. And what's the point, John? John's got here. What's the point? It's continuous. It's an honours-based system. You're getting out there and you're doing a half Ironman by yourself or I'll have Bevan uh, alongside me. So far, my training's going really well. Yeah. Pulled a calf, haven't done nothing. Yeah, great. <laughs> sort of pretty shit by t- hill repeat session. <laughs> so you're basically going out there to do a half Ironman. None of this Ironman um, namby-pamby stuff where you can have a break between the three. Appreciate some people aren't going to be able to swim. You can replace that with a, a run if needs be. But the idea is do you swim. Get on your bike as soon as you can after getting back from the pool and run off the bike. So you're doing a half Ironman. Most of the athletes that I coach that I'm getting to do this, I'm saying do it at Ironman effort. Do it as a training day. Do it as a completion. You can still get some really valuable information out of it if you do it at your Ironman intensity. uh, And just be part of the community and get stuck in. So uh, it's the end of the season for a lot of you guys the season that never happened if you're in the northern hemisphere or some of you got a few races in uh, so just something to do it's going to be on october the 11th if you're on zwift we'll have three different uh time zones going off i'll be setting up um three different group meetups and you ride 90ks on zwift on the predetermined course um, no drafting and once you've done your 90 you get off the bike so we'll have one starting at 8 30 in new zealand on the sunday one in uh, Great Britain, uh, or so for the Euros at 8.30, and then one in Eastern Time in the States. And you get on there, and hopefully we'll have a bit of company for you. Get stuck in, get it done. John, it's going to kill me. So we've got two weeks, basically. Um, a little, oh, yeah, when's this when show coming this? out? Correct. Oh, my God. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, less than two weeks, actually. Two weeks last weekend. Uh, if you do want, to, uh, do want to be a part of it, you need to go to imtalk.me and click on the little training button and you'll drop down, it'll tell you about the world champs. You need to put your name down there and then you need to follow me and Now Swift. we're doing the day of the race, aren't we? We are. So we'll put yep. that on the TV screen when we're doing Zwift? We, yep, well, the race isn't on and we did. Oh, I think, of course I said that last You made the same that. mistake two weeks ago as well. So we will put a kind of coverage on. Your responsibility, Bevan. <laughs> is to figure out how we're going to do a little bit of live coverage in my garage, whether we do a Facebook Live thing or something like that. Okay. That's your responsibility. What's the, what's the best compliment that's a backhanded, com- um, a backhanded compliment you've ever had? Oh, jeez, I don't know. I've had two really good ones. Yeah. One is, um, you're the stupidest smart guy I know. Right. I thought that was a good one. Okay, yeah, good. You're good. the stupidest smart what guy. What was the other one? Can't actually remember it. Yeah, nice. Uh, So if you do want to be a part of it, you need to follow me on Zwift if you want to be riding on Zwift and then I can invite you to the the meetup. Oh, one guy at the gym once came up to me and he goes, you'd have a perfect body even at such a fat ass. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I was like, where's the love? (laughs) I had no fat on my ass. I obviously just got good sized glutes, John. Yeah. But you go, that's the thing when you work in a role where you're in front of people, people just don't really think about the human side of you. <laughs> like, you literally just come out, oh, Bev, you just have the perfect body if you never fat ass. <laughs> and it was coming from the place of, you know, it was, was being, being nice. nice. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. There's my best compliment. Okay, John, let's get into it. I'm pretty excited about this. John's well, history, history lesson. lesson. So, eight years ago, it would have been just about, oh no, we're in September now. Uh, the Olympics would have been in August, I think. Joe and I had just moved into our house. Oh, really? Yeah, I think we moved in in 2000. Yeah, we did. We moved in 2012. We just moved in together because Joe and I lived together for nearly three and a half. We went out together for nearly three and a half years mm-hmm. before we moved in together. Mm-hmm. We took our time. We did. Do you know why? I had a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> Step parenting's hard. I thought, let's leave this as long as possible. Yeah. Uh, and it actually worked out really well. So we just moved in. And I remember I said to Joe that day, let's watch the Olympics. Let's watch the Olympics. <laughs> Honey, how do we make this home feel like home? Let's watch the Olympics. It would have been the middle of the night for us, I'm sure. Cause I watched nor- it. Normally the Olympics, it would have been 
No, it wouldn't have been middle of the night. It would have been late night, late night viewing. Because norm- in, in the, several of the previous Olympics we've talked about, they've held the race early, early, early in the day because of the heat factor. So we had Athens, and um, we had Beijing. Tokyo was going to be like that. Rio de Janeiro it was definitely held early in the morning as well. But London, you know, you know, even in the middle of summer, geez, you'll be you'll be pushing it if you hit thirty. Um, but you kind of expect you can pretty much race on any London days, and it's not going to negatively impact the athletes. So I don't know exactly what time of the day they raced, but if you were watching, it looked like it was midday, didn't it? It would have been, yeah, but I would, I would say it'd be late morning probably. Now, tell, one thing before we get into this here, John, if you want to listen to a great interview, um, mm-hmm. go to our Legends of Triathlon podcast and we speak to, what was his name? Put John on the spot here because I can't remember. John, 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 John. We could probably look up Legends. Yeah, you have to look it up. But we interviewed the guy who actually was the race coordinator and it's mm. a really cool interview. It's a really great interview. So you can go check that out. But John, let's look at what was happening before the race began. So leading into the race, what were... Well, before what we do that, before, when I started doing this last night, as I was scrambling for content <laughs> for today's show, I was going, oh, we're up to 2012, it's London Olympics, this is going to be a bit of a bore fest, because yep. most of you, well, a lot of you know that um, John, uh, Alistair Brownlee won the race, and I thought, dominated. I'm just going to watch this, and it's going to be a bit of a domination race, like it would be on a, on a World Championship Series race, you're going, okay, Brownlee's going to win it. But I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, it's a bloody good race. But leading into it, so I thought first thing I do, I sort of go back to 2011, you know, around about a year out and see um, what the athletes are doing to see if that's much of a predictor of what's going to happen. One of the results I stumbled across was the um, World Championship Series race in Hamburg. And this is a bizarre result. So we've had this before. We've had three Australian females on the podium. Yep. Uh, but this one, you had three Australian females winning um, in Hamburg in 2011, all with the first name Emma. So you had Emma Moffat, oh, really? took it, won the win. Emma Jackson was second, and Emma Snowsall was in third place. And Emma Snowsall was the um, reigning Olympic champion from Beijing. Um, but she was on a bit of a slide at this stage, and the next sort of generation was coming through. You know, Emma Snowsall uh, was just usually the dominant runner, and here, you know, she's running 33-16, which is still awesome but it's the same as what the others are running. Uh, and so she'd lost that sort of dominating um, performance that she had. Now, had she slowed down or just the game had sped up? Uh, she, it would be a little bit of a combination of the, of the two. She had health issues, she had injury issues and so on. Um, so yeah, 2008 was, was certainly her sort of peak. Um, so that was what was happening on the, the female side in 2011 in Hamburg, which I thought was quite significant. Um, but as it turned out, Emma Snowstall, and I can't remember the full story behind this, she didn't even make the team for, for 2012. Or if, if she did, she didn't race anyway, she's not in the results. Uh, the men's side, Brad Carterfelt took that out, William Clark was second and David House was third so Hamburg was quite an important race uh, and then we look one year out in London and this is probably more significant on the men's side you had Alistair Brownlee take it out, um, Alexander Brukankov was second, Jonathan Brownlee third and, and Gomez fourth so that was a very good indicator of what was going to happen um, further down the track and, and also the other guys in the top ten were, were names that ended up in the top ten at the Olympics as well the likes of Laurent Vidal, David House <laughs> uh, Sven Riederer and Vincent Louis, so our current world champion um, in 2011, nine years ago, he was sitting in 10th place, so he's improved quite some margin since then. And looking at um, one year out in London on the female side, uh, you had Helen Jen- Jenkins, Alan Jenkins, um, Gwen Jorgensen finished in second place a year out, and Anya Dittmer was in third, Emma Jackson, Emma Snowsill in fourth and fifth. Um, so then rolling into Olympic gear, and this was pretty consistent with what I've seen at other Olympic Games as well. The, um, the race that you, if you go and look at a race about five to six weeks out, it's usually a pretty good indicator of what sort of form people are in going into the Olympics. Yep. And we do that here. We look at Kitzbühel, which was held uh, in late June. Um, so one of the main lead-in races to the Olympics. Men's side, first place Alistair Brownlee, second place Jonathan Brownlee, third place uh, Javier Gomez, uh, and that ended up being the podium in London as well. Then you look at the female side of things, and similar story there. First place Nicholas Spirig, and uh, there was a three-second victory over Lisa Norton, and Andrea Hewitt was third. Andrea ended up finishing fifth at the Olympics. So again, going into the next Olympics... Let's see, in Tokyo, if we look about five weeks out, if they have a World Triathlon Series race, 
see if we uh, who the form athletes are. It's, it's, it's a pity we haven't done this throughout this whole series that you're doing because it'd be interesting to see if that's a consistent thing. I think it has been. Yeah, I think it has been. Now, one thing I'll say is we've talked about the Olympic races are available on triathlon.org or the Olympic Channel and the 2012 ones are available on triathlon.org. This time around though, they have commentary, oh, which great. makes a heap big, big difference. Yeah. And it's actually a, a Kiwi commentator, Brendan Telfer, who um, does, oh, does really? a pretty reasonable job. Yeah, it's, it's sort a of, bit of an icon in New Zealand. Yeah, it's sort of the international feed. And so as I said earlier on, going into this, I was thinking, this, I kind of know what's going to happen. And, and going into the race, we kind of thought when you were, like, it was, Everyone thought that Brownlee was going to win. Oh, totally. And he was and he, so dominant at that time, wasn't he? Yeah. And it was a peak athlete in the peak moment of his career. And looking at the course, it didn't necessarily give people the opportunities for, for big breakaways. Um, the course in London, they swam in the Serpentine in central London. Um, they, I think they had to do quite a bit of work to clean that out. It was a pretty, even when they raced in it, it was still a pretty brown patch yeah. of water. But um, they would have done the testing to make sure it was at least met the safe standards. Uh, the bike was a really cool course in central London, you know, taking in lots of the highlights. Uh, is it John, I'm just watching the women's sprint right now. Oh, it's epic. Oh. You want to watch the whole women's um, run. It was just awesome. So the bike course was um, was a really cool scenic course, all taking lots of the London sites. Crowds were just mental. And, and, and likewise with the run, the run, I don't know if it went down the Thames, it certainly went past some water somewhere. Uh, looked like a really cool course as well. But the big thing was the crowds were mental, much like they were in Sydney, but probably even more so because you had the men's favourites. You, you're pretty much guaranteed at least one medal and it was likely to be the gold it's a free event to go and watch unless you want to be in the the home stretch uh so the crowds yeah. were mental um and we'll talk about the women's race first because it was uh, it was impressive and you going into it there wasn't really a dominant clear favorite you got you had a good handful. You going, they could do it. They could do it. You know, Helen Jenkins was looking pretty good. She had had a good year before. We were hoping Andrea Hewitt might do it. You had Sarah Groff, um, and yeah, it was quite an open field. Um, and the Australians were reasonably strong, but comparing it to the men's race, um, it would be pretty hard to go to the TAB and put a bet down a, a real sort of shoe in. Um, quite different the females' race. How it pans out to, compared to the men. Um, the the main Female contenders were a minute down out of the swim and ended up coming not all together on the bike, but the front group was pretty large and there wasn't many contenders that were left in the second group. So, so really it was just going to be a running race. Mm, and what a running race. Oh. It would go down as one of the best because they started with a decent-sized group and it just slowly got whittled down one by one. So going into three of the year was girls here. Well, there was going into the last lap, I think there was still – Andrea was just hanging on by three. Yeah, but you kind of got the feeling with her she was going to drop, didn't you? Yeah. and You know, because she was holding on – she was kind of – Doing that kind of rubber band thing, wasn't she? She was mm. and then she'd fight back. Mm. But you kind of thought, mm, it's not her day. It's a, yeah, t towards the end, it, it came down to about five. And then uh, I think Jenkins, Helen Jenkins, who I think was the reigning champion at the time, and she was the local favourite, She, I think she got tailed off. Then it came down to four. And that was with a couple of hundred metres to go, it was four. And then Sarah Groff, who is now Sarah True, who we know well from the Ironman world, uh, then she tailed off, so she was out of the sprint finish, and then it was a three-way And the sprint finish. finish is probably, what, 150 metres? It's pretty much when they get on the blue carpet, yeah. which I'm guessing is, they've probably got a standard distance. It's probably 100 metres, maybe 150. So Sperrigan Norden dropped um, Ditchin pretty quickly. Yeah. And... and and Spirig went quick. And if you watch, I've just watched it then. If I didn't have known the result, I would have thought, oh, she's going to blow. She's gone too early. Mm. Well, she didn't. She kept a very high pace. was there. closing the game. Norton had the outside line. She closed it, closed it, closed it, and literally on the line, closed it right up. And they Photo went across finish. the line together. Photo finish. And I did feel bad when you're watching it and then you you know the result. And Lisa Norton sort of started celebrating. I think she thought she had it. Yeah. Oh no, that must so be a real downer. Is, is, is it foot over the line? Or is it just first part of your body across the line? Because sprinting's a bit different, isn't it? I assume it's your torso. Um, so getting your torso across the, the line first. Yeah. So I've, I've never actually seen a photo finish of it. Um, but in the end, how uh, cool Nicholas was that? Spirit took it. That's that's what you want from sport, eh? Mm. You know, oh. at the Olympics, the peak moment of the of the you know every athlete's career. 
to have a sprint finish, which literally is a photo finish. And when you've got that process, that that whittling down process through the yeah. run, so you, you'd go, I don't really want to go and get Who a cup of most? coffee or anything because if I come back, I'm going to miss something. Yeah. A bit like in the Tour de France when you're watching an uphill stage and you're going, I can't leave because something's going to happen when I leave. Uh, so it was a great race. Um, a bit unexpected, you know, at least in Norton, a few years earlier, she'd been one of the real dominators in 2009, 2010. She was winning lots of races, being right up there. But in the years, sort of the... 18 months before she wasn't really doing much so she had the talent there uh, maybe she was injured I'm not quite sure um, but she came through and she still you know she won a race two weekends ago in Germany yeah. so she's yep. still at it doing a bit of long course stuff I don't even know if she's done nine man or not if she has she hasn't crushed it but she's certainly done well in halves um, and Nic- Nicholas Spurig is just going to go down as this enigma who could turn it on when she needed to you know she what do you mean well she didn't she didn't follow the circuit she she did races here and there, just came in and out, a bit like with, with Rio, you know, she finished second in Rio, um, having hardly done any race, she'd gone off and had babies and stuff and then came back and did enough to qualify and then she'd always be there or thereabouts, but then when the Olympics came round, with the race she wanted to crush, she was right amongst it. Really? And just a beast all that? round. I like that person, you know, doesn't do the traditional route. Mm. Does what they want to do, but then can absolutely smash it. Yeah, so yeah, she wasn't the one that followed the tour all the way around and had a career where she was. I don't, I don't know if she won any world titles actually, but when the Olympics came around, she was ready to rumble. So awesome, great race. I'd encourage you guys to watch it. Uh, and then the men's race, as I said, I thought it was going to be a bit of a bore, and I probably, I probably watched it for five minutes or so last night, just sort of skimming through it. Yeah, I just watched the recap and. What was most impressive is the bike ride, they yeah. just looked like they were laying it down the whole yeah. way. It was just this long single line and you see Alistair Brownlee on the front and just with his teeth gritted, just laying it down. You saw some people trying to attack off the front and at times it sort of looked like a bit of a bike race. Well, and that's the thing I found fascinating about it because Brownlee just kept going to the front, didn't he? They had a break early and you won. I thought the break might have gone away, stayed away. There was like six or so of them, but they did get swamped and it was probably a group of about 20 that came off the bike. And again, not all the contenders were there, but most of them were. Um, Terrible transition. Did you see the crash? Uh, two the, guys who were two of the first the swimmers came out and one guy did the wobble and took out the other guy. I didn't see that part, but I'm pretty sure Simon Whitfield got taken out on the bike. He didn't finish. Oh. Um so I think he did as well. So yeah, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be a bore fest on the bike, but they actually just laid the smack down. So it was, it was a kind of pack riding, but it was just aggressive riding, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. Um, and then coming off the bike, they were jostling for position like the finish line was at the end of the bike ride. Chris Gemmell clearly wanted to be able to say that he was first off the bike oh, at the Olympics. He? And he was like, Because he wasn't a contender at that stage, was he? He, he? I think he got 12th or something like that, yeah. maybe 15th. Uh and yeah, they were laying it down. And then they got off the bike, and my God, that first 500 to 1,000 metres of the run, they all their faces, they looked like they were going maximum effort. Like Brownlee must have just had the strategy. I'm going so hard. I'm going to demoralise yeah. everybody. And he did a pretty good job of it. Um, but I thought he won the race with more ease than he, than he actually did. He was working it, and Gomez and his brother stayed with him for a long time. And at the end, Gomez was not very far behind. Uh, so it was pretty impressive racing all round. It was, was about it? 30 seconds. No, maybe it wasn't that it was, long. It was less than that. I mean, he eased up in the finishing shoot. Yeah. But it was it was not a massive gap. Like, you'd, you'd seen him elsewhere. He'd pull out to, like, a good 45 seconds plus. Uh, but here, he... Uh, yeah, it was, was not that much. And he was hurting the whole way. You could see it just itched on his face. He was hurting. They ran, he ran 29.07. And I'm going to say that's probably pretty accurate. On that course, it's got to be. Yeah, the Olympic Games, you're going to get the old wheel out and you're going to make sure it's pretty accurate. Uh, 29.16 for Gomez and 29.37. When they did the side shots of them running along sort of this watery section, they looked like they were absolutely sprinting it. It was bloody, it's the fastest running I've seen in, a long, long time. It was awesome. Just guts. Mm. Just absolutely. It was so cool. So next time you're on the trainer, go watch the London Olympics. So we ended up being Alistair Brownlee first, Gomez second, Johnny Brownlee third, David House, the Frenchie fourth, the late Laurent Vidal in fifth, Jan Fredino, um, he finished in sixth. He was a defending champion. Brukankov was seventh, Senrida eighth, 
and uh, Vincent Louis, who's in the current big big wig. He just beat out Bevan Doherty uh, for taking home eleventh. Bevan was twelfth. Gemma was fifteenth. There you go. That was the London Olympics. Worth a watch. Johnny Brownlee, he broke, he broke away, fell away about seven k's in, didn't he? Yeah. 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 Did he get a time penalty as well? One of them got a time penalty. He stopped, stopped going, didn't he? he did. Yeah, I think you might be right. Yeah. Okay, John, let's do it. Half, oh, one, two, three, four. Half, five. Hold on, have we got an interview we're putting in or are we doing No, you put that next. For... Okay. Hey, I'm following your notes here, mate. Okay, I'm sweet. I'm doing my job. Uh, okay, so what are we going to do? So, high five, and I've had an experience, so I might be able to contribute to this. And what doesn't work when you're being attacked by a magpie? So the reason this comes up, magpie season started in Christchurch, and this show is a week later than this incident happened. I went out, rode to Akaro and back with a few people at the weekend. Um, it was four of us. It was Tyrone, Luke Parker, um, and the Holy Hammer. And we got savaged by magpies. Uh, we always do on that route at this time. Yeah. <laughs> and then last night we had running. Uh, so I take a group running on Monday. And it sounded like everybody thought they'd been savaged by the magpie worse than the other person. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. He took. He was just taking me apart. I've lost an eye. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, it, was, it was great entertainment on the way over. So there's this big hill climb called it's, the hilltop. It's one of those things that's hilarious if it's happening to your mate. Oh, and this is what happened. <laughs> it's a, I think it's a 7K climb up hilltop. And we're going up there. Oh, so they got you on the up? On the up. And we're going, there's four of us, and we're not smashing it or anything. And Tyrone's at the front, and this magpie just starts <laughs> laying into him. It wasn't hitting him too much, but the three of us were just sitting behind him, and he was just getting cane, and we, it didn't come for us at all. So we're having a good old chuckle. <laughs> and then we get over the top, and I had a text message at the top. We're meeting the, the fillinator, Phil Patterson, on the other side. He was okay. over there at his holiday home. And he said, watch out on the way down. There's a really aggressive magpie. So luckily we got the forewarning. And so you're going down this big descent, waiting for this magpie, waiting, waiting, Descending waiting. Descending in a magpie hit you. That's not yeah. good. And I've, um, with my new cube bike, which I think is awesome, I was on the TT bike. My lights don't fit it. So I have like a, a headlight on my helmet. Okay. Um, just because we, we left at 5.30, it was still dark. And I, was, I said to the guys earlier, I bet your bloody magpie will probably attack my my, uh, my headlight and try to pull it off and take it off to their, back to their nest. Coming down this descent, and we had the sun behind us. It was still pretty early. Magpie comes in, he attaches to my helmet, and because no I could see the sun behind me, and I'm descending, you know, probably 50 to 60k an hour. Oh. This thing's attached to my helmet. You gotta be careful because the problem is you lose concentration. Oh, I'm shaking my head all <laughs> over the place trying to get this thing off and trying to stay upright at the same time. And it probably was only for a few seconds, but it was felt like it was there for bloody ages. I'm shaking my head so hard. Eventually, then the light comes flying off, and the and it went smashing onto the ground. And and so then I had to do the turn when you're in the biggest gear and going back up, and the magpies hitting the others as they come through. Uh, so I thought we'll do some things. What doesn't work during a magpie attack, based off some of the other feedback I had from other riders. So first up. Yelling at a magpie does not seem to work. No, they don't seem to listen. No, somebody said I was yelling and screaming at it. It doesn't work. It's like a partner in a bad relationship. Mm. Um, John, no amount of swinging your pump seems to work. I've tried that one. Yeah. Ah! yeah, I've done that. And the magpie's just sitting there going, you're an idiot. Yeah, yeah. Just, just take it. Uh, next one, having zip ties pointing out of your helmet. That's a big ma- thing in Christchurch for a while, wasn't it? Makes you look like an idiot. Yep. And it doesn't work. I've seen it. It doesn't work. Yep. Um, spraying your water bottle doesn't scare them uh, an aggressive magpie did you try that but, yep try that I didn't try this on this occasion but water again the magpie's gone what's water yeah. going to do to me it's not going to do been, anything I've in rain and then I've also seen number five I've seen athletes who put eyes on the back of their helmet yeah. it doesn't work either again you look like a dork we don't have a number six but the, basically the story is just got to keep riding. Yeah, and really is because I remember there's been times because doing that ride, but not that flat bit before it, you don't have to get hit along there as mm. well. Um, and the problem was, is I'd be swerving all over the road, mm. you know, and you're just swerving all over the road and you're looking up in the sky and you're not thinking about oncoming traffic. Now, that ride, you're going to have to have long patches where there aren't cars, but it's pretty dangerous. So you are best, what's the worst? Because they hit you from behind on the head. It's not, yep. you're not going to turn around and come at you front on. So well, funny you say that. This oh, one on the weekend, he was coming from Tyrone almost at 45 degrees in front of him. So you could see him coming. Oh. But yeah, my, my tips would be Just if you try riding. to tie, try, keep going, try to keep your head facing forward. 
and then try to time your ducks. So if you can hear them coming, I always try to time my ducking of my head so he misses when he comes in for the dive bomb. And the other thing that I'm getting more of a sense of is they often go for the front person, not always, on the group. So you don't want to be the person in uh, the front. So I remember one hey, time... Mate, you got to the front, mate. <laughs> I remember one time riding with you, you were on the front and you were getting savaged. Tyrone was getting savaged at the front. Uh, so I think... And I got savaged when I was first one going down. I think avoiding the front might be a good strategy. I think it's a very good strategy. Okay, guys. So hopefully in your part of the world, you don't have magpies. Okay, John, we've got an interview with an age group athlete. Chloe Healy is up right now. Okay, team. Um, we have got a suge- we had a suggestion last week from Duncan Penfold over in the states. He said we've got this um, awesome athlete, Chloe Healy. She recently crushed it in the seventy point three in the Sunshine Coast, um, which is in Queensland and Australia, where we are starting to see a little bit of racing coming back into play. And uh, and he just said she crushed it. I looked at the results and I confirmed that she did crush it. She beat uh, Shannon Prophet, who I know pretty well, and I know Shannon can bike the house down. So I figured if Chloe's smoking her, she's doing pretty well. And you, she's still pretty new to triathlon. So welcome along to the show, Chloe. Thank you for having me. No problem. So give Morning. us um, give us a bit of a bit of your your background. You know, um, you obviously smoked this race a couple of weeks ago, and I understand you're still pretty pretty new to the tri scene. So give us a bit of your background into sort of what got you started into triathlon and why. Yeah. Um, so I started triathlon probably early 2018. I did my first sort of it was a women's only corporate sort of triathlon, and I did it on. Um, like a push bike that I bought from the grocery store that week. Um, Wow, that sounds like a really safe bike. (laughs) Yeah. So her name was Helga and she was pretty heavy. Um, And we – sorry, I better turn my phone off, hey? Put it on silent. Um, I – so I did that and um, I'd just come back from a year of travelling overseas and I sort of came back to Australia thinking, you know, I've got to find something to do with my time, a bit of a hobby and find some purpose. So I made a resolution to go to Parkrun. Do you guys yeah, 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 know yeah, what Parkrun park is over yeah, in New Zealand? Yeah. 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 So I started doing that and um, I guess firstly I just wanted to try and make it through the five kilometres, which took me a few months. And then eventually I started you know, um, talking to people and getting to know sort of the running scene in Brisbane. And then I met people from a triathlon club who said, you know, come down and free sample, you know, this, our tri club. And I went along and sort of one thing led to another and I ended up at that triathlon with a few of my friends and I just loved it. So um, I guess from there I... I don't know how deep I want to go into this story. Um, <laughs> how am I, do you want me to play by play, I guess? Then I sort of was still coming back from traveling, sort of partying a little bit, trying to find my feet. And um, one day I decided to get a bike with skinny wheels and signed up for a 70.3 in 2018. And I guess the long course triathlon really just took off from there. And what's the name of your new bike? If you've gone on from Helga, have you, have you given the new bike a name? Yeah, so the first one that I got, her name was Rocket because I thought she was the fastest thing ever. Yeah. Um, looking back, she's kind of just a bit of an entry-level road bike. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, she helped me a lot and um, since then I've managed to get a TT bike and I haven't actually named her yet. I keep trying in all my races to get a feel for her, but I just can't name her. Mm. Hey, so, so, d- so you obviously, well, well did you have you. a sporting background because you've obviously come into sport in a very short period of time and achieved some pretty high levels. Uh, what was your history in sport before this moment? Um, I didn't actually really grow up in an environment that sort of fostered success or even really engagement in sport. So I didn't get many opportunities as a kid to do sport um, and I regret that, but... Um, I guess I'm glad I found it later in life eventually because it's really changed my life. So when I was um, growing up, I actually had really unwell parents, so they were drug addicts. And um, I was raised across an amazing tribe of, like, aunties and uncles and foster parents. And, you know, they were amazing. And they did a really good job of, you know, showing me love and trying to um, make sure that I 
had access to as many things as possible, but it's a bit difficult, you know, when you're moving across homes and things like that to, um, I guess, um, really have that stability and consistency to engage in sport and have those opportunities. Mm. So I sort of went to school, I did okay, had a go at sport, but um, it was a bit too chaotic at home. So it's pretty hard to focus when you don't really know what's going to be going on at home. And, um, you know, sometimes my parents would flare up and then they'd disappear for a while. So um, it was pretty hard to, I guess, also have that self-belief and things like that when you feel a bit rejected and, I guess, helpless. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit of a tough time. And um, I sort of I made it through. I think largely it was about survival as a kid. So then as I grew up, I sort of started to want to get control of my life and control of my mind. And unfortunately, I did that a bit negatively first. I actually got an eating disorder, which mm. looking back was just a coping mechanism. And um, also looking back, if you want to take everything as a lesson or a blessing, it actually taught me a lot about you know resiliency and discipline and hard work, which mm. I think I now get to use in sport. Mm. Um, and... So that eating disorder didn't really make me better and it didn't, you know, give me the purpose or that I was looking for. And it sort of taught me that you have to be your own hero. So then my, I guess, journey to self-belief and self-discovery sort of started then. Um, and I realised, you know, I couldn't change my story and my parents weren't ever going to get better. So I needed to, I guess, use my childhood to make me stronger and I guess I share that story because I think we all have adversity and sadness and we you know we can't control the cards we're dealt but we can choose to play the hand that we're dealt Mm. and triathlons really taught me that and it's been a really beautiful learning experience for me so you know not only am I driven to be you know the best strongest fastest athlete I can be I'm really like driven to inspire others to find you know, their own potential because life isn't always easy, but I guess we can, we can always have the power to change that. You can always change your identity and I guess triathlon's been that for me. So, so Duncan was saying yeah, in, in terms it. of your occupation, though, you, you're also, I guess that stems from your, your upbringing. You're working in social social. Um, Social, tell us social your, work. Yeah, social work. Tell us a bit about your occupation yeah. and, and how that sort of fits in with life and how you make it all sort of fit in with, with training and what have you. Yeah. Uh, so I went and studied psychology um, and while I was doing that, I was working in social work. So for about 10 years, I was working in the community with vulnerable people and I definitely think my upbringing sort of led me to work in that area. And I did really enjoy it um, because, again, I think there's, you know, some beauty and adversity and things like that. So I was working there, but just recently I changed jobs to working at the university uh, as a student advisor, which has been a really positive change. Um, And I'm really enjoying that. I also like that I'm not doing outreach work anymore, so I can sit at my desk and have that recovery time um, instead of being running around town. Mm -hmm. And then... With the new job, they, it was meant to be five days, but when, when I accepted the job, I sort of said, hey, uh, but can I work four days because I just want a bit of work-life balance. Mm-hmm. And the, my manager was like, oh, you know, we don't usually allow that unless people have, like, care and responsibilities. I was like, oh, I'm going to have to tell her about the whole triathlon thing. <laughs> I said, well, look, I won't actually <laughs> be relaxing on those days off. I usually do, like, my bulk training day, an extra day. Um, on top of the weekend um, because I have these goals in triathlon. And, yeah, she agreed to it, which was awesome. And I honestly probably wouldn't have taken the job if I couldn't do four days because, yeah, what, the triathlon what, goals are too strong. What, yeah. what does your training week look like? Um, so I do double days most days. It changes uh, weekly, I guess. We do blocks. We do four-week blocks like builds and then you have a recovery week um and I've only just started working with a coach this year so I've sort of 
just learning how all of this training peaks and builds and things work. So I'll do my best to explain it. But I generally ride three to four times a week, run three to four and then swim three to four, I guess. Um, the weekends are my big days and the Friday that I don't work. Um, but I guess it's probably pretty similar to what other triathletes are doing. There's a pretty good recipe for success there, um, I'm sure. Just a lot of work. And so what's made the difference in you know, the last 12 months? <laughs> you've gone from you know, just more or less starting the sport to you know, a couple of weeks ago having been the fastest age grouper at the, the 70.3, beating a, few, a couple of the pros, I believe, in the, in the process and you know, putting yourself you know, at the front of the age group race. So what's been the really big difference? And have you, is it a case that you have got massively faster in the last year? Um, and obviously, though, at the moment, you know, lots of people can't travel, but when you're beating people like mm. Sharon, um, you, you, you're still, not Sharon, Shannon, you're still going bloody well. So what, what's been the big difference in the last 12 months? Um, the biggest game changer, firstly, thank you for pointing out about not everyone being able to travel because I think this race, it's a bit hard to race at the moment and say you're the top age grouper with, mm. because not everyone can show up to the races. So thanks for saying that. I feel a bit naughty when we don't highlight that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the biggest game changer for me was meeting my coach, Richard Thompson. He just completely changed me as an athlete mentally and physically. Uh, so last year I went to Bustleton Ironman with your friend Duncan mm-hmm. and we both qualified for Kona there, which was really exciting. And uh, that week I went to the local pool um, and I ran into my mum's cousin actually who said that he knew this guy that did triathlon. And uh, anyway, eventually met Rich and as it turns out, he really like knows his stuff about triathlon mm-hmm. um, and he – it took me under his wing, I guess, and has been working together since February. And I think that's been the biggest difference. He's also taught me a lot and I've really had to learn how to live what I call the vanilla life, which is, you know, not going out so much on the weekends, um, eating good food, getting enough sleep, removing stress from your life, things like that. So I think I used to be really busy and really social but I've really had to tone that down and I think that that's been an important part as well and Rich has really helped me with the um, I guess adjusting to athlete life and what it takes to become more successful. What's the struggle with that because the reward is a better athlete but then there is neglect of other areas that are also really important as well and how do you make sure you balance that well? Um keep a circle of friends around you that also do triathlon (laughs) really helps. So that definitely helps keep it social. Um, I think, honestly, I didn't want to say the C word on this podcast, but COVID (laughs) has been a bit helpful for that. So I guess people haven't been able to go out or um, hang out as much. So just by default, I've, I guess, my life's gone a bit vanilla. Um, I guess, you know, when you do big weeks and you're so tired, you can't even really be bothered to wash your clothes or, (laughs) you know, you just order takeaway because you're so tired. You do start to wonder, you know, how am I balancing sort of all the aspects of my life? Um, And uh, we have a, some friends and I have this theory about like the three Ps. So you have a store, you've got professional, personal and performance. And I sometimes think about that and I, it does get a bit wonky sometimes and you have to go and like focus on one leg of the stool to try and get it all to balance out. But I also think part of becoming a successful athlete is being able to hone in on one area and really, really work at it. So sometimes balance doesn't really work with training. Exactly. You just have to accept that. And you sort of mentioned, you know, you've got some pretty lofty goals. Um, so sort of what, what's your plan? You know, again, you're still really new to this. Um, so you qualified for Kona. I guess that's rolled over to, to next year. So, yeah. and, and you're, you know, you're at a level now in a really short space of time where, you know, you were the top age grouper. I know, again, the field um, 
was strong. It may not have been, it may not, not everybody was there, but again, there was some, you beat some pro athletes and looking at your times, you yeah. know, you competitive. And it was a 20 minute PB, which I really am stoked. Yeah. With. You have to be so happy with it that was, it was awesome. Sort of stuff. Um, mm. But is the plan to sort of try to be a really dominant age grouper and keep that, I guess those three P's in place, or do you have aspirations to, to try to make it as a, as a pro? Maybe you'll have to have me on the show again in six months. And <laughs> we can talk about it. Yeah. I, you know, um, leading into Kona because it's you know still a year and a bit away. Definitely, the focus is to, you know, be up the front in the age groupers, um, and I really, I guess that's all we can work with. It's pretty hard to try and go professional if you don't have the big races to back you. Um, yeah, that. Is probably an over yeah something that we're working towards mm. it's definitely there and um, i often think about it you know when you're in the age groupers and you feel it's uh i feel a little bit like sometimes you like become the big fish in a smaller mm -hmm. pond and going professional is really scary about becoming that small fish in a big pond again um and it's exciting but i also want to just i guess probably grow and adapt to my current you know, little lifestyle, my little pond that I'm in now with the age groupers and um, then see if I outgrow it eventually and can turn pro. I think that would be really an exciting career and lifestyle and adventure. Um, I, I see you're in the 25 to 29 age group. So are you at the, uh, you never want to ask people their age. Go on, how old are you? Are you at the lower end of that age group <laughs> or the upper end of that age group? I'm lower. So I turned 27 at the end of the year. Oh, you got plenty of years in oh. front of you. Plenty of Big years. Big future, bright yeah. future. When did Natasha Badman probably won her last Hawaii when she was about 40 or something like that? Was she really that old? She, she was 40. Yeah, wow. she, was, she, was, she was doing pretty well. Um, if people yeah. want, you've got a, I didn't really know about your story until you, yeah, you started talking earlier because Duncan sort of said, ask, ask about the story. And I did see one, he sent through some picture of you having a little sleep somewhere after the, um, after your recent race, so I imagine you must have been a little bit tired. <laughs> <laughs> that, that one. Uh, is that the one with my feet hanging out from the curtain? Yeah, you must have been having a little lie down. <laughs> <laughs> they call, yeah, that's the Wicked Witch, Witch of the West photo because we were in um, Western Australia and uh, after Buster's and I fell asleep behind a curtain. Yeah. He's right. I can't believe he sent that to you. No, it won't be, it won't be going on our homepage, don't worry. Um, so just in terms of if people want to follow you, you know, it's, a, it's an awesome story what you were telling us before and, and how you got to where you are. So, so do you Maybe just one last question for me is why does that make you a better athlete? Because, you know, you often find it's our sport's a funny sport in regards to it often tracks people who have overcome – Massive loss of adversity. I've ever so you know, ex-alcoholics, ex-druggies. You know, there's lots of people in the sport for that reason. Um, yeah. You're obviously a challenging upbringing and, and life situations. Why has it made you a better athlete? Yeah, it's it's interesting. The deeper I get into this sport, the the less I'm worried about the past as well, which I think is really beautiful. That so many people get that from this sport. Uh, what makes me a better athlete, though? Um, Honestly, I'm grateful for my parents' genetics. <laughs> I think mm. I was born to a good set of – they used to do a bit of sport before they became unwell. And then, like, the resiliency that it teaches you. Um, and also, I think a big lesson was that uh, I guess you're on your own in a way. And in triathlon, as much as you have a good team around you, it's all on you. And I think they really – my upbringing really taught me that I have to take control of my life. And so in a race, I have to take control of, and training, you have to take control of the session and you choose whether you're going to be successful or you're going to give in. And I think that's really important. And um, also probably, I, I guess, the, I probably really crave consistency and perfectionism from my upbringing. And I think that really helps me to... Um, train consistently and hit the numbers because I'm really determined to be as perfect as possible. Nice. So as I was saying, if, if people do want to follow you, you know, you, do you do any social media or anything like that? Yeah, I do. So I'm on Instagram just as Chloe Healy. Mm -hmm. um, so it's Chloe with a K as well. Um, and then just on Facebook so far. Nice. So 
please do follow me and I will try to follow people back because we can build a nice triathlon community on there. Awesome. No, I love, as I said, uh, you've got an awesome story there. I look forward to seeing uh, seeing how you roll out in Kona next year. I, I keep saying on our podcast, it's happening next year. We've just got to make sure we can all travel there somehow. Uh, so good yeah. luck with that. Uh, and this is actually going to come out after Ken's. Are you racing Ken's or not? No, I'm not, but I'll be there cheering people on. Brilliant. So awesome. I look forward to the weekend. Yeah, Close. All the, all the best with um yeah you've got a, over a year to get ready for Kona and hopefully you'll get some more racing. I know uh, we've got the best build, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> you qualified early. Good stuff. <laughs> oh, awesome. Beautiful. Thanks for your time, well, Chloe. It was lovely to talk to you guys. Awesome, Thank you. Mate. Thank you, Jumbo. Your thoughts? Oh man, what a interesting lady uh, and a tough upbringing to make her the person she is now. But geez, she's smoking it. So she did the. 70.3 in Sunshine Coast. She swam 27.03 uh, and then she rode a 2.31. And to put that in perspective, there's some pro athletes in there like Beth McKenzie basically riding 2.29 John's getting old, time. Tim. John's getting old because obviously pretty the small. pretty small. John's literally got his, pulling his computer up to his face <laughs> to have a look at it. Absolute gold. And she ran a 1.33, which is pretty impressive. And she did a finish time of 4.36.46. She was the first age grouper overall and she beat some pros and she beat the second age grouper, Shannon Prophet, by 10 minutes. And as you're saying, Shannon Prophet's a beast. Shannon Prophet is a very strong athlete. So good work by her and making a difference to other people as well with the work she's doing. So good on yeah, her. Yeah, really good stuff. Okay, John, um, let's do a winger of the week. So we're away this week, so we're going to go back and do two weeks ago, are we? Yeah, because I inadvertently stuffed up last week. Um, so we're going to look two weeks ago and give me uh, – actually, let's have a look. What place did – I'm going to say eight. You're going to say eight? Well, I'm going to – Are you going to override me? No, we'll go with eight. Okay, go with eight. Okay. So this week's wing, uh, number eight. Darren Phillips. Darren, oh, good old Dezza. Dezza. Dezza just biked all bloody week. Nearly biked for a day of the week. Didn't do any running, didn't do any swimming, but he biked for 23 hours and 33 minutes. It's, so wait, what, what number do I go? Eight. Eight. Darren Phillips. So nearly rode one-seventh, very close to one-seventh of the work. He's from Bath in England. What do you reckon is the most you've ever ridden? God, that looks or like Christchurch. Um, what's the most you've ridden hours-wise in a week? Well, I suppose because we've got Epic Camp, that kind of skews yeah. things a little bit. So if we think five days on Epic Camp, say say you're riding five hours, no, seven days, there's seven days in a week, isn't there? Yeah, there five? are, yep, yep. Good, glad I got that straight. Yep. You're pretty sharp, uh, Let's say we average five hours a day, so I guess that's 35 hours. So nearly two days. Mm. Yep. Well, and that's without half. the, and then... Oh, no, no, that's not true. My biggest epic week was 67 hours of, tra- of training. Training, yeah, that includes. That was before the day of auto-pause on the Garmin's and stuff, which shafts you when you have all your stops. Oh, that screws like that. you. Yeah. That's not fair. You're no. just out there training. Exactly. Tell you what, good old Dazza. From Bath in England, which is just down the road from Bristol, which is in both those uh, real hot spots for This is like triathons. his biggest week ever. Really? Yeah, well, if you look at the graph, you know, in the last, since, well, last year at least, this is the biggest week by Where's, country mile. And he's gone and done the in C five hundred, NC five hundred. So let's see if we can try to figure out what that is. I'm thinking it's North North Coast five hundred. Um, on day five, they rode for ta- from Tongue to Torso, and where are they? They're up the top of Great Britain. So they rode ninety five k's in four hours forty six. Geez, there must have been a bit of climbing in there. Uh, and then what did they do the day before that? They did. <clears throat> Up the north coast, north of Scotland, beautiful pictures. So I don't find Strava that easy to navigate. But no, anyway, it's really not. Darren, he was riding with Nicola McAlpine, so good work on you. Darren's biggest ride that he's ever done, 177.3 kilometres. Do you think it's an Ironman it was a bit short? I think it probably was. Yep. Uh, the biggest climb, 1,024 metres, but it's an impressive week. 24 hour, Just shy of 24 hours of riding. Nice work, Darren Phillips. Cool. You are our... Age winger group of the week. Oh, winger of the week, sorry. You'll be age group of the week if you want to make him that as okay, well. Okay, you're age group as well, because I'm, I'm that kind of guy. I'm pretty generous, John. Okay, let's do questions and answers. John's swim set. It's not your swim set because you're in Kiteria. Maybe this is in the, in the ocean. I could have done. Uh, I'm not too sure. The water, I'm, I'm taking my thermal helix up there, Ooh. and we may go in the water. We'll see. Uh, so I haven't got a swim set this week, but I have. 
because this is one of my favourite open water swims to do. If you're somebody who's still at that time of the year where you can swim open water, um, often people just get in and they just swim open water, don't have any structure to it. Get your old watch out, get your auto lap going, and this is what I like to do. Um, first K, you do auto lap where it um, beeps every 200 metres, and you do 1,200 metres of alternating, 200 metres steady, 200 metres moderately hard. So kind of alternating between Ironman effort and probably best case half Ironman effort. Then you stop, you switch your, your watch to um, 100 metre auto lap, and then you do 1K pretty much as above, maybe 100 metres steady, 100 metres hard. So you're having some pace variation. Finish that extra K there, and then the last thing you do is you just do 8 times 25 strokes. So you're counting your strokes where you go 25 um, flat tack, 25 easy, 25 flat tack, 25 easy, eight times through that. So that's going to make, A, it's going to make your open water swim a bit more interesting rather than just turning the arms over and it's actually going to have some benefit to you in terms of actually developing some speed and some different intensity zones that you're going to hit. Okay, there you go. So you can check it, you can listen to it again and write it down because I'm not putting it in the show notes. <laughs> uh, let's talk about patrons, John. David, no need, Christy. Florian, the fast mofo hike. And Gavin, the Big Brew Duffy. The Big Brew, I like it. Actually, it's funny, I, was, I looked at the Coffees of Hawaii website the other day. Huh, yeah, really? Blast from the past. Yeah. They kind of moved their model, I think, from sort of being more wholesale, um, wholesale rather than retail. He's still getting a buy off the website. Mm. Yeah, so hopefully Albert's still listening. Hello, Albert. He's, I like Albert's Instagram mm-hmm. because it's just beautiful shots of beautiful places he goes to. So mm-hmm. hello, Albert. He's a good man, Albert. Um, okay, John, let's wrap it up. Uh, if you want to become a patron, go to www.imtalk.me and go to the patron section. You get a cool nickname. You support the boys in doing what we do. And also a big thank you to people who are patrons. You really make a difference to the show. Uh, while you're there, you can get your show emailed to you down the bottom of the front page. If you want some coaching, coachjohnnewson.com. My podcast, The Bevan James Owls Show. Go to bevanjamesowls.com. Our cool content, or like age group of the week, websites and other feedback, email imtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Jombo, your goss. Uh, so I'm sitting in Kaiteri, top of the South Island. Uh, need to do a little bit of training this week because we've got Epic Camp coming up in a few weeks. You didn't even bike to Kaiteri? I have not biked to Kaiteri. I'm not even taking my road bike this time. I'll just go Ooh, mountain back bike. it up. What's all that about? Take the mountain bike, do a little bit of that with the kids. I've got the park now. Is it good? Park's great. Uh, beach, as I said, may get in the water. It's going to be pretty fresh. I'm picking. Somebody told me, uh, Grant Boyd was telling me that I think it's 12 degrees when he was there a week or two ago. That's fresh. That's fairly fresh. That's fresh. But he was swimming. So you don't figure out it's 12 degrees. In a witty, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So we'll do that. So the, the, the helix, that's. How much warmer is it? The thermal helix is significantly warmer. So if you are doing... So we work with something like that, you'd feel pretty comfortable. Yeah, but it doesn't protect your face. And that's if face, hands and gloves. And when you put on gloves and booties, it makes, again, makes a little bit of difference. You still can't get anything to cover your face. Well, you can if you really, really want to. I suppose you could wear a diving... I'm pretty sure Molina, when he did the kelp man, he wore a a hood, a, a diving hood. So then it covers your... You know, much more of your face plus your neck and everything as well. Um, I have not not desperate enough to go down that path. Remember those old goggles that were really big? What were they called? Aquas, 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 aquas. I think so. Yeah, Yeah, those of a big face mask. Yeah. You give me ideas. Uh, (laughs) And it's Belinda's birthday on the Monday. Wait a second, Belinda. I'm going to say forty-four. She was trying to confuse me the other day. (laughs) I'm only forty, whatever. I'm like. No, you're not. And I was like, let me just check. No, you're not. You're the same age. She's weird. Yeah. Uh, anyway, she's uh, her birthday on Monday. What have you got her? Because this will come out afterwards. Well, she's got herself uh, <laughs> something. And then she suggested something else. I've got that. And then I've got her a nice bottle of um, bubbly wine, which she'll like. And then I bought a fo- you're reminding me, I bought a photo frame with three pictures in it. I've got to go get the pictures developed. Oh, nice. Nice. So that's it. I got Joe a pair of RPM shoes. I got a few oh, yeah. things, but yeah. practical gift. But she's nice. Because she never, she's never actually used cycle shoes before. Yes. Yeah. And she's, yeah. Big, big difference. And there's one of the things which she likes, but you kind of don't get how good they are until you don't use them. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of hoping she forgets them one day because then she'll appreciate me more. Great. That's how these things roll. What, what are you going to do with your week off with no podcasting, Bevan? Oh, sleeping. Yeah. No, I never sleeping because I've worked for this. But well, John, I have you got some goss. Because mm-hmm. uh, Joe and I had a dentist date. Mm-hmm. Because I've been going to the grinder yeah. for years now. Great dentist. Yeah. If you're in Christchurch, yeah. go to Linwood Ave. Do you, have you been? Do you go to her? Grinder, yeah. She does a bit of grinding on me. Yeah. 
yeah. and on the dance floor. Yeah. And uh, and so Christine McKinley, so uh, stupidly, her dentist is called Linwood Ave. Yeah, dentistry. You made I've made this made this right mistake. next door. Linwood dentist or something dentist. like that. Yeah, like, right next door, two dentist places, names almost identical. Yeah, I've rang the wrong place about five times. Yes, and so but Joe Joe's dentist was crap. Mm-hmm. And so Joe was like, I need a new dentist. And I was like, and she'd missed like a year's worth of checkups. Mm-hmm. I was like, baby, you've got to go to the dentist. You, got to, you know, because mm-hmm. it's going to cost us in the long term. It's an investment. Mm-hmm. So yesterday, which is two weeks ago, but yesterday, Joe and I, Monday afternoon, mm-hmm. we had back to back appointments. Oh. Yeah. I'd have exhausted after <laughs> that. Yeah, dentist date. I had to get a filling. I had a filling, John, that I had to get I booked in because I had my checkup a few weeks ago. I had a filling. And then there was a pretty decent chip in one of my teeth at the back. And when we were on holiday, in Tekapo, I like a Snickers bar frozen. Oh, I don't. Yep, carry on. Do you know yep. I like Snickers? No, I don't. I'm not big on frozen chocolate stuff. Oh, see, I love it because I love sucking the flavour. Mm. So I like to get chocolate frozen and it's just nice long disbursement of that chocolate. What are you looking at? I thought your cat was about to jump off the edge. <laughs> Had enough. Yeah. <laughs> the story sucks. I'm out of here. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so I love it. I love freezing my chocolate but Snickers normally you normally chocolate you can break it small and so mm-hmm. but Snickers you gotta you gotta bite it so I'm biting mm-hmm. the Snickers bar that was frozen <laughs> chipped the tooth worse oh. but luckily I booked in with the grinder and she fixed up my tooth now nice and smooth brilliant so there, and Joe we had it afterwards so it was a it was a grinding date nice because the, the grinder grew impressive both of us <laughs> she did <laughs> so there you go um that John let's get let's get let's wrap it up Iron Russ. I'm in Train hard. Train smart. Kia car.